Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Psychobethical Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Kirkpatrick. Um, another week, another week goes by. Um, thanks for thanks for every, everyone for downloading these podcasts. It sounds like it's the end. <laughs> that was a very short podcast. Um, remember to click sub, sub, subscribe and all that kind of stuff. Uh, um, yeah, thanks for, for for downloading these podcasts or, or listening to them. Um, the uh, I just saw that when, like you had like six thousand six thousand downloads last week, which is quite kind of impressive because it's like pretty shit podcast. So everyone must be maybe there's like a bit of a people aren't doing you know listening to many podcasts. I've just started listening to uh, Ian Parnell. He recommended for me to listen to the Hardcore History um, podcast a while ago, so I've just started listening to that and that's quite good although i have noticed that you know if you listen to a lot of podcasts you realize that i reckon jocko willing who i mentioned i think in the last podcast who i, I, I I've, I've kind of stopped listening to him a little bit um for some reason i think you do get i think you just get a bit you just get a bit i think if you, get, if you have lots of guests keep changing um if, the, if you have lots of guests and you keep listening to them it's funny that you really enjoy your podcast and then you suddenly like drift off and start listening to um to other people, other people's podcasts, but um, yeah, so pod, yeah, it's an interesting thing the the podcast world, isn't it? Mm. Uh, I just one of my favorite podcasts is I should be telling you this because you'd be like, oh, that sounds much much better than this podcast. Um, is that is uh, Eric Weinstein's um, uh, the Portal? I don't know if anybody listens to that, but that's quite good. He was talking to a porn star uh, this week. I've never heard of her. And uh, so that was kind of that was kind of interesting. There's a few bits we could tell. He'd like cut things out because he was trying to make it family friendly. When she was talking about having like a you know a dick up her ass or something, <laughs> he, had to, he had to change it. I think we thought you anyway. I find sometimes the portal's quite good because the people on it are usually like super super intelligent, and I literally don't understand anything anyone's talking about. Um, uh, but I understood what she was talking about because she's a porn star. You know, we speak the same kind of language, so. Not that I've ever had a dick up my ass, you know. But there's nothing wrong with it if I did. So anyway, um, I thought I don't think I have. I'm sure I'd remember. Um, yeah, thanks for everybody uh, mentioning uh, um, <laughs> mentioning that I wasn't an expert on women's breasts. Uh, if there's any women listening to this for the first time, if someone says, "Oh, you got to listen to this podcast. It's really, really good." They'll have had me talking about getting a dick up my ass and not being into women's breasts at the same time which could actually be quite a progressive kind of podcast 
So yeah, um, uh, what was my point? Oh yeah, so six. So that's quite good. That's quite good because sometimes, uh, sometimes you think like, oh god, this is like a waste of time doing like bloody podcast. Uh, you know, like what's the point? So at least it's better than writing. So right, you know, writing's a complete waste of time. Um, on that subject, little uh, housekeeping, <laughs> personal housekeeping. I actually am housekeeping at the moment. I'm actually tired of trying to tidy up the house. Um, uh, not while I'm doing this podcast. Uh, like I'm trying at the moment. My big thing is I'm trying to finish this book. Like I'm rubbing my face at the same time because as soon as I start saying it, it makes me feel exhausted. So I'm trying to finish this book, this down book, and at the moment I'm just sort of laying, laying all the pages out in uh, InDesign. And I've laid out, I laid out all the pages which were easy to lay out, and now I'm trying to lay out all the pages with um, with all the diagrams. And there's like there must be like three, like two hundred diagrams in it, and it's God, it's like so it's so difficult. It's like yeah, I don't know if this was like when Frankenstein built um, his monster. Ah, I see. I thought you were going to get me. Then. Yeah, I was going to say Frankenstein. Frankenstein was built by the other guy who was Frankenstein. Um, anyway, but you know, you just you. You just spend so much time, like anyone out there who's a graphic designer type person, you know, you, you know, you, you sort of start laying it out. It looks quite good, and then like you spend like an hour, two hours, and it's like no, that's shit. And then you change it again. Then you go, I need, a, I need to sort of work out a grid. So you do this grid, spend hours doing the golden ratio and all that kind of shit. And you, and you do it again. And you're like, no, that still looks shit. The golden ratio is a lot of bollocks. And you start just doing it, doing it, and then you've been doing this for like. A week and you've still not really you've got like one page of your book and you're like oh christ i'm gonna be doing this i like i literally feel like i'm it's like a sentence doing this like i just literally i've got so many things i want to be getting on with and i can't do them till i get this thing finished and uh so yeah then you redo it and then then you just think like i'll just bang it all in there it doesn't really matter if it's shit basically it's for climbers what they what, they, what you know you could just you know just print it on a you know a photocopy it you know and they won't even you know they still complain so um but yeah well, i say i seem to have i seem to have started getting somewhere now where it's starting to you know it's like having like a, a knitting machine where you're just like you're just doing it backwards and forwards for like a few a few weeks and nothing comes out apart from you know nothing so um but anyway it's starting to work so hopefully it's gonna i'm gonna it's gonna work now um other 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 book projects i've got to do i've got to do this book um uh i've got to finish this fictional book i'm writing which is like a bonk buster um you know it's like shagging climbing uh stuff like that um basically i'm going for the whole uh, 50 shades of gray it's like 50 pitches of gray it's called uh, it's not really um so i've got that's kind of that's like kind of a, a half written already but i just need i can't get back to that till I finish this and um what else am I doing I'm gonna do I'm gonna do a book on on uh on my relation personal relationship with food uh it's called uh <laughs> it's called oh should I tell you if I tell you don't tell anybody because it's there's probably another book like this with the same title um so it's called uh roll of fat hear my cry um you know I know it's actually based on a roll of thunder hear my cry which is like you know you know, you know, it's a kind of serious book and maybe people will be like, Oh my god, you're so you know, something. But um yeah. But yeah, but but I think it's kind of a funny book about about food and stuff and about trying to 
get your head around food. Like one of the one of the main stories in this book is actually uh, I once went to the supermarket and I bought like four chocolate eclairs and I uh, paid for them. And I was, so I was like living with someone. I thought they could have two chocolate eclairs and I could have two chocolate eclairs and uh, they could give me one of their chocolate eclairs. So I was walking to the car and I thought I might as well, I might as well have my chocolate eclair, one of my chocolate eclairs now. So I, I ate that chocolate eclair and it was like really nice. And I thought like, oh, you know what? I might as well have, if I have, I'll, I'll have the other chocolate eclair um, because then we'll just have what, one chocolate eclair each when I get home. So I, so I ate that chocolate eclair. Then I got in the car and, and started the engine. I was like, you know what? I'll just have my chocolate, <laughs> just have my chocolate eclair now. So I got the other chocolate eclair and I ate that chocolate eclair. I was like, you greedy fucker, you just had three chocolate eclairs. And they're going to realise it because you can have this box and it's only got one chocolate eclair in it. So I thought, I'll just have to eat that other chocolate eclair. So I ate that chocolate eclair as well. And then I like put the packet, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very tidy. I just got the packet and shoved under the seat of the car. And then, of course, like she found the bloody thing, you know, like, what's this? When did you have these photos? And I had to, had to tell her. That's why you should never have an affair, basically, for a man, because you will always get found out. You know, it's like whether it's... Or a woman, you know, if whatever whatever you're doing that you shouldn't be doing, you always get found out. Really, that's why prisons are full of people. So, so yeah, so that's you know, roll of fat hear my cry. Um, it's an interesting book about stuff, body image, body image. God, I sound like a, one of those bloody people now. Anyway, but anyway, that's interesting. Uh, what else is the? Oh yeah, this virus thing is coming. So anyone who took my advice about the, um, if, if not, of sort of blocking the news, not watching the news anymore, and uh, getting rid of your mobile phone and all that kind of stuff. Um, if you did it, you ought to know about this, but this is virus coming, it's going to kill us all. Um, it's killed like 400 people out of a population of like 50 billion, so I, I'm not so, not so worried. Um, but yeah, it was a very, it's a very good time, because not only did you miss World War Three, this turned out not really to happen, you also miss the prince and princess of somewhere not being the prince and princess of somewhere anymore, and you're missing this virus thing, uh, and the impeachment thing never happened. All these things that are kind of not don't happen. We basically have the news is basically full of things that might happen, but don't happen. It's just it, you ever, you ever, if you think about it, like you know, tsunami, you know, that happened, you know, <laughs> Japanese tsunami that happened. But, but you know, they were only reporting it as it was happening. They were reporting it, like, a month before telling you it was going to happen. So, anyway, if the virus comes, it doesn't really matter if the virus comes. Because, basically, everything will everything will fall apart. And uh, you'll either die or you won't die. Um, and if you don't die, it's still going to be quite difficult. But you'll get over it. You know, everyone you know, every, a lot of people you know are going to die. But, you know, I think every, if you're like with the Extinction Rebellion people, I bet they're all like, come on, come on, like they've got the fingers crossed and everything else. And so, yeah, um, I think if I was going to if I was going to make take precautions for the for the zombie apocalypse coming, I think I would probably buy a big bag of rice and I would probably buy uh, I'd probably get lots of water and uh and fuel like if i've got like a camping stove or buy if i got like a petrol stove i buy a load of petrol and put it somewhere because basically all that stuff you know torches all that kind of stuff there's like the whole prepping thing it seems like a complete you know what crazy people do americans people live in alaska um basically everyone in alaska is a prepper but actually actually it's probably a good idea to be a prepper when you know everyone's dying 
Um, so yeah, that's my advice for prepping. So so this this uh, thing of the podcast, this this edition of the podcast. Um, I was I went um, I went running the other day. I went on I've been I went on a like a run, like a paid run. We have to pay to go running uh, with all these people. And uh, it's always funny when you go on. A, it was like seven. It was like a seven-kilometer race. I didn't win, and um, I didn't even have my didn't even have a timing chip. I left it at home. And Vanessa was like, "Oh, are you, are you know your time." I was like, "I know my time. It's, it's going to be slow." Apparently, I'm solid though. I don't know if that means a good thing. <laughs> it's like, what was the shit like? It was solid. You know, that's probably not good, is it? So, I um, but you know what's, what's interesting when you do a when you do a a race. Is you run because I'm running with all these like Arab people and like Arab people, they're kind of um, they're very loud, but they're very uh, they're very kind of machismo, machismo-y type, you know, macho kind of people. So if you ever like pass an Arab person, they'll invariably like speed up and try and, and try and get past you again. So all you have to do is uh, you go past them once, and then they then they sort of pass you out. And then you just stay right behind them, just just so they can see you, and <laughs> just 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 going at their pace they're going at, which is a bit faster than they can go. And then they just like lose it, and then you pass them out, and then it's like cool. So yeah, why do why do um why do uh why do Arabs always lose all the wars with Israel? That's like an, there's, a, there's a whole thing about it. It's quite interesting about hierarchies and all that kind of stuff. You know, Google it. So um um. But yeah, what's quite interesting is you get these, you know, you you do your run and you get to the finish line and someone always tries to give you a stupid medal. You know, I'm not, I'm not 10, I don't need a big fucking medal. And, um, you know, you run, you run past, you, you, you avoid your medal. In fact, I didn't get my medal. And at the end of the day, when it's all forlorn, everyone's going home, this is like one medal, like hanging on the thing, you know, that, that person didn't take. So... Yeah, it's quite interesting that people, like, they're obviously basically walked around the whole thing. They're coming in, like, half an hour after you came in. And then they just, like, always sprint to the, at the end, you know, like, sprinting at the end. It's like, you should, like, use that energy and use it a bit more all the way around. So, Well, there was a friend a friend of ours was running who was uh, who's South African. Uh, she's South African. She's South African. And she's... Um, so, I think in South Africa, you have, like, you're black, you're white, or you're coloured. Uh, so the quad coloured is if you can a, a South African person can say coloured without it being like like taking great offence about it, but it's interesting because her her mum was white and her dad was black. So we talk like I'm really interested in um, like I always say I'm interested I'm I'm not just interested in racial stuff. I'm interested in why people think the way they think about things. So we're talking about that kind of stuff because if you if you're coloured in South Africa, it's kind of it's, you know, it's probably the worst, worst thing to be because you're not white and you're not black. You're like coloured. So you always, you know, like I've met quite a lot of people who were like, you know, Indian heritage and things in South Africa. And it's, they always have a really interesting take on things because they can see it from both sides. Um, it's funny. Generally, they always they always say this is this is going to upset people. They generally said that black people are more racist than white people. But um, that's just that. What do they know? You know, they just live there. So, um, but yeah, but talking about these talking about these things um uh we were talking about like the out, outdoor world and all that kind of stuff and also like i'm a i'm a minority here in this country and so i went to the climbing it's not really a climbing wall it's like a climbing war it's like a it's like a 
bit of, you know, like three meters high, you know, three meters high, 10 meters across, like piece of wood with some climbing holes in it. And there's a lot of uh, climbers there, but they're all kind of, you know, from this community, Arab, Arab people. And you always feel kind of like there's always like a climb. If you ever go to a climbing wall or if you ever join a climbing club or something, there's that there's that clique thing, isn't there? You have to get through the clique and you first you go there and you go, oh, I thought everyone in the climbing club was very unfriendly or, the, you know, I just didn't, didn't really fit in at the climbing wall. But you just have to keep you just have to keep going. And suddenly, you know, you um you know, you, you, you get there and you, you know, you feel fit in. But if there's like a, if there's kind of a sort of a racial, you know, like, you know, cultural kind of element to it, it's probably even, it's probably even bigger because everyone's speaking, a lot of people speaking a language, like I don't speak Arabic, so um, I know what one is and stuff. And, uh, you know, and, um, and, uh, but yeah, so there's that, that's, that's kind of an element. There's always like of a, there's like a cultural gap really and um so it is it's is kind of hard but I kind of quite enjoy that feeling I quite like I I was I'd say I've always been like an outsider and it's probably to do with my dad being in the air force and like moving a lot until I was about the age of six and uh you know so you never ever really felt like you were from anywhere you were always from sort of nowhere you were always going to school you know going to school or making friends and leaving and then when I was six I was got taken to Hull and uh, I was so it was so completely out of my experience of going to live in like a block of flats um you know shitty, horrible horrible place to live you know in a city and not live in a city before I think for the rest of my childhood I always felt like an out I always felt like a total outsider I always felt like I saw everything in a different way to everybody else and uh and I think that probably that that's probably one reason why I ended up I always like associated myself with outsiders uh, when I was at school, um, and uh, and probably because I never went to university, I also then have you know I have like a my my the way I see the world is is different to almost every single person I know who all went to university and all see the world kind of in the same way, but but they don't see it don't see it my way. So, um, but I did it my way. So. Um, what was my point? Yeah, being an outsider. Like, I've got a really good story about about the idea of um, a clique. Is that a friend of mine, Wayne the fireman? He was a fireman. He he uh, in in Hull. He decided to join this uh, like territorial, like Royal Marines kind of uh, thing in Hull uh, for some reason. I think he was doing like a philosophy degree and decided to become a Royal Marine at the same time. So he went. He went to this. Uh, to this barracks and they have like a every Wednesday night they'd have like a you know you could come and join the Royal Marines so he went down there and uh, he did some you know, some training or running around see if he was fit enough and at the end of, at the when he finished they said oh like go up to the bar and you can have a drink upstairs so he went to this bar and at one end of the bar was all these Royal Marines people with their green berets and their outfits on and he was at the other end of the bar with all the like newbies and uh, Wayne is like he's you know uh he's a kind of he's a very special kind of person uh i've not seen him for years i think he's still alive um like one, one time a friend of mine he was like he's a more he's a very annoying person and he was in liverpool somewhere and this guy um uh was like trying to strangle him because he was really angry rang angry at him and this policeman were all standing there in the next to a police police car and wayne was like help help my pimp's trying to kill me you know that is that kind of person so he uh Anyway, so he, he sidles up to the other end of the bar where all these Royal Marines are, 
um, to get a drink, and they and they say, "Oh, sorry, mate, you can't come up here. Like you're not a marine. You have to go down that end." And he was like, "Oh, you bastards! You bastards! You know, fuck you!" And he and he goes to the other end anyway. So he does his he does his training. It takes him like I don't know, like a year or something. Do all his training, and eventually, uh, I remember like he'd had something where his lace, one of his laces, was twisted on his boots on parade. So they made him eat like a whole block of butter, probably keto diet. Um, anyway, but eventually he gets his gets his green beret, and he goes into the <laughs> gets a pen, gets a you know M60 machine gun, strips off naked, starts killing people with a big knife. It wasn't that kind of green beret, and he uh, he goes into the he goes into the barracks. It's the first night there. He's got his green beret on, and he goes up into the bar, and they're there, and they have like a pint for him. Here, when you know, and he, so he goes up to that end of the bar, and he's drinking his pint, and then this like newbie comes up, and Wayne's like, "Sorry, mate, you can't come up here. It's only for Royal Marines." So, um, so the idea of being like the outsider or the it's it's really it's a really interesting uh you know that it's a, like a tribal it's a tribal thing it's a thing you know like p- passing a initiation tests and all these kind of things is to be is to to belong in a group is a very um it's a really it's a really old kind of thing like uh i can remember like i think nelson mandela uh i always remember like nelson mandela in his book very south african this issue so this podcast is he had to be circumcised like when he was like 16 or something or 16 or 17 to be part of this initiation into the into the tribe he was in which is a god it's quite a steep quite a steep learning you know probably get it done when you're a kid then you can say i've had i've had mine done already so so yeah so it's, i think there's there's definitely this thing lacking in in the western world of um you know initiation ceremonies like everyone is basically just just left to wander off it's like a you know like a you know zoo where there's no cage <laughs> everyone's just wandering off doing what the hell they want and uh trying to find some kind of identity whether it's through like star trek or crossfit or whatever you know everyone's trying to find this this kind of thing but um but talking to this friend of mine uh it made me think about you know like i was the only person doing this run who was probably a white person um and uh and here you'd never like i would say like where i live there's the i would say the the majority population is not the native population there's probably more people here from like india bangladesh like the indians sort of you know sub, subcom, subcontinent uh, but there's no way you'd ever you'd ever go on about um you know there's not enough diversity or there's not you know people are excluded from these things or whatever it just isn't doesn't really uh it just wouldn't even work the same with like, if you're in like Korea or you know or whatever like in the rest of the world these things don't really um don't make any sense you know people would think like what are you talking about it doesn't make any sense <laughs> he's gone crazy so so I was thinking about this book this post I wrote a while ago and basically what it was it was a a defense like I'd seen more and more things appearing in the outdoor you know, world, um, mainly online stuff, basically saying, like, in, in so not gen, not always saying like outright, but just inferring that basically climbing, you know, almost any sport really was racist, basically. That's the kind of the subtext that it's like, it doesn't like minorities. But when it says minorities, generally it doesn't mean all minorities because a lot of Asi- Asian people you know take part in lots of you know climbing if you're climbing in 
if you go climbing like in Australia or America, there's lots of people who have like sort of Chinese, Korean, you know, kind of heritage and stuff. So I kind of been like, you know, it's one of these things where you, you, you see it more and more and more again, that people are being excluded. And there's like, you know, all these like stories about, you know, I went to the climbing wall and I was made to feel really uncomfortable and, and all the, and all this kind of stuff. And I kind of, I kind of ignored it for a long, a long time because it, it kind of was, because for me, like I'm, you know, I've kind of been banging on about these kind of things for a long, long time. And when I first started doing it, everyone thought I was just being racist or whatever, because you're not supposed to talk about this kind of stuff. But, um, but now it's one of these things where it's like, uh, you know, like when the Mongol hordes were coming, you know, and people like, oh, there's some Mongol hordes coming. I've, I've seen like the outriders or reconnaissance and oh, don't worry about it. You know, don't, don't think about it. And then anyway, because it's like, if this Mongol horde come, we're going to basically destroy all our civilization. And then, um, you know, the people who are like saying, oh, I think, there's, I think there's something bad's happening. You know, they've like fucked off over the Alps to Rome and you've, you've just been obliterated by the Mongol hordes. So th- this is one of these things where um, people say, oh, this is this kind of stuff people are talking about. It's just students or whatever. But slowly it kind of creeps in. And uh, I just seen I've just seen like more and more things about it, but the, but wouldn't that you know the climbers are all racists, and um, and, and very almost zero pushback uh, against it. Mainly because I think if if people think they ever push back against it, they're gonna they're gonna sound like they're like you know alt right or something, or they're gonna be you know punished for for defending you know defending themselves. Um, so I actually, I, I actually wrote. I can't remember what what spared me to do it, but I actually wrote um, wrote like a defence uh, of, of of climbing, walking, kayaking, mountain bikers, all these people, to try and just like set out like this is a really complex. This is a really complex issue to do with um, access to the outdoors. If you're you know a minority or whatever, or if you're black or whatever, and. Uh, and I really wanted, I didn't want it to be, I wanted it to be fair, I wanted it to cover lots of bases. So people who were just like, oh yeah, you know what, oh, okay. everyone everyone who goes Clyde Boulderers are all racists. They'd be like, well, you know, there's these, there's, you know, look at this, look at the demographics and look at these kind of things and the cultural kind of issues, you know, like loads of black people drowned. Um, does that mean that water's racist or, you know, but, you know, there's there's reasons for it, you know, blah, 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 you know, and there's there's... So that with all these things, some really interesting stuff to talk about. But with everything that these days, I feel like we make we make um, molehills out of mountains, and we make mountains out of molehills. Like this is an issue that, if we talk about it, then we might find some some way of making things better. But if we just let other people talk to us about it and tell us what we that we're all racist asshole bigots, you know, everyone in the countryside is is a white middle class, you know, like, you know, you know, vote or whatever, you know, right wing person, then that's not going to lead us to the place where we want to go, which is, you know, where we've been heading for a long time. So, so I decided to uh, write something like a defense against the outdoors. And I wrote it and I, you know, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to read, I'm going to read it to you now, if, you, if you've not heard it, because it's kind of, there's some good bits in there. Um, but what kind of shocked me was I actually wrote it with the intention of giving it to uh, a magazine or like a website uh, for free. Like, here you go. I've put, I've put like, you know, three days of work into this. You can have it for free. I think it's like important for the, 
as a community to, to talk about this in a way which is more, which is actually progressive, which is not just pretending to be progressive. There's actually, let's talk about this issue. And what shocked me was like, no one wanted to print it. It was like, oh, we don't, we don't publish this kind of stuff. It's like, what? But you just published something about white privilege or you've just, you know, you, so I was kind of a little, I like, yeah, maybe I wasn't surprised. Um, like I think that, yeah, it's, it was, it was, it was kind of sad. It was, I was, I felt disappointed that, that people wouldn't, the people who we think are there, you know, I was, you know, a magazine has like a very important role to play. You know, it's like, it represents who we are. And if the people running these magazines and things basically think we're all fucking scumbags, you know, stupid scumbags who are racist and bigoted, it is kind of it's not it's not good. So like I, I I mentioned in the last podcast how I you know how I wanted to write this story about going to Denali with my wife and you know getting super high in the winter you know winter time minus fifty all this like really cool stuff and she was like totally amazing and hardcore. But how it was turned down because it was it sounded too, you know, like, um, you know, gender, you know, like, I don't know, like this man, this man on this mountain with his wife kind of thing. It's just uh, you kind of wonder, like, who is running these these things? So, so anyway, so eventually I just thought I'll just I'll just stick it on my blog. I've spent three days writing it. I'll just stick it on my blog. And then um, and and uh, what surprised me about sticking it on my blog was how I got almost, I don't think I got any criticism. I got some like positive remarks from people saying how it was well, well structured, well thought out. I had lots of data and stuff in there, but no one, no one seemed to actually be critical of it. Like I was being tone deaf or I didn't understand this, the, the issues and all this kind of stuff. So, which I felt was like some sort of faint, faint praise. So I thought I'd, uh, I thought I'd read read it out because remember I'm trying to learn how to read properly uh, at the moment. Um, ready ready for doing my big lanyard like lanyard issue, which I'm still working on my um, my thing. So I thought I'd um, I thought I'd read it out. So so before before I read this out, I don't don't think this is gonna this is not something that's designed to make anyone feel bad about themselves or feel good about themselves or feel like I'm on the right side, you're on the wrong side. Um, you know, like progressive people are all crazy people. They are, but you know, but um, you know, it's like it's on a spectrum. Basically, on one side you have basically, you know, psychopathic skinhead. You know, people who want to kill Asian people, and on the other side you have like, <laughs> you have you have psychopathic skinheads who want to kill white people. You know, like basically, and in the middle is like everybody else, and basically the distance from the middle to those people. It's a hell of a long way. There's not many people in that distance. So, but it is a, it is a spectrum, and uh, so yeah. So, so you know. So I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> in this bizarre, I'm actually just reading something, defending like thousands and thousands of people, you know, who are good people, from the from the charge that they're somehow, you know, not good people. So maybe they're subconsciously not good people. Maybe that's the problem. So. But hopefully, I'll uh, hopefully there's nothing in here which is going to be which is m- being horrible to anybody, uh, because really everything I ever everything I ever do in my life is 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 always from 
I, I do try and be respectful to people and I do try and understand why people believe the things they believe. Um, and sometimes it doesn't sound like it, but I, I do. I am try. I, I, I'm more interested in understanding than like, I'm not, I'm not interested in judging anybody really. So I'm just more, I just want to know why things are the way they are. That's why I write instructional books basically. Cause I like, I quite like trying to understand why things are the way they are. I used to like making models when I was a kid, and if someone gave me a model, I'd generally like break it up to see how what it looked, what it were, how it was put together, rather than just keeping it. I get like a, a tank, and I just like smash it all up so I could see how it all fit together. So this is a bit like that. So um, so I'll read, I'll read on, and then um, see what you think. So it's okay. Most days when I'm walking to work, I pass men playing cricket. They're generally men from India, Pakistan, or Bangladesh. Sometimes I stop and watch them playing, their stumps made from a stack of bricks, their bat held together with tape. The reason I stand and watch is I like to see their obvious passion, that this is the most important game in the world, and for a few hours they are escaping their tough lives. I'm sure they've seen me standing there, along with everybody else, and yet they've never asked me to play. Is this because they don't like white people, or they don't like foreigners, or minorities? Because here, I'm a minority. Or even, that cricket itself is racist. Now don't worry, this is not about cricket. This is about the outdoors. Climbing, mountaineering, or just walking your dog. But what if someone made the charge that the outdoors put up barriers against others from joining in? And even that, at its heart, it's racist. Patriarchal, designed to oppress others, not like you. Even that it, at its heart, it's based on colonialist values. How do you defend the outdoor communities? Climbers, walkers, kayakers, mountain bikers, bird watchers, and those beyond. The Saturday morning park runners, the cyclists, the triathletes, the train spotters, against the charges of whiteness. And that these communities, both consciously and unconsciously, exclude minorities. If you think no defence can be made that even if you're not a bad actor, everyone else is. Well, not the people you know, but everyone else. Everyone else being racist, xenophobic, homophobic, privileged, sexist, basically scumbags. Even if most of them don't even know, only you. Such a person tends to have utter certainty, a religious conviction of a world of elites and power. The outdoors, just one more place, where our colonialist values are played out. A place rife with toxic masculinity in which we fail to recheck our actuality and instead marginalise people and oppress them with our rules. If you think like that, then switch off now. I think there is, al- there is also, there's also those who don't feel like that, but feel that's how they should feel. And listening to me now is somehow dangerous it makes them feel uncomfortable. That to defend them, everyone they know, and the things they love, is somehow wrong. For something, for someone to express doubt over what seems like a universal truth, something that's agreed on, that we are unconsciously bad. I think there will also be those who don't feel like that, but feel that's how they should feel. And listening, listening to me now is somehow dangerous. That to defend them... Everyone they know and the things they love is somehow wrong. For someone to express doubt of what seems like a universal truth, 
something everyone seems to agree on, that we are unconsciously bad, is dangerous. For you, I say, listen on, because without doubt, you have no faith. The main reason for not wanting to defend the outdoor community, one I've been part of all my life, is that it's not a golf or polo club, no offence intended, but overwhelmingly centre or left-leaning progressive and inclusive. The majority of people you meet in the outdoors, locally or globally, are working people or in education or retired, the majority highly educated professionals, many working in the public sector, teachers, doctors, nurses. For this reason, anyone reading the charges against them is already positively inclined to nod and plead guilty. Yes, they know they're not guilty, but agree, collectively, the outdoors is a place for a middle-class elite, mostly men, who are unaware of their unconscious biases, white privilege and the hostility and their hostility to minorities. After all, where are the minorities? So, as you can see, I've not wanted to defend the outdoor community, as I expect my help will not be welcome, not by the accused and not by the accusers, who will just read off a shopping list of rebuttals that I'm tone deaf, out of touch, unaware, ignorant of history, Words that sound as if they're asking for someone to try harder to understand, when really they're, they're all about the fact that I can never understand, so don't even try. Just stay in your lane, know your place, and let them tell you. Although it's a very effective technique, I don't feel I have a place. Before I start, let's set some geographical boundaries. What we're talking about is the outdoor communities in the Anglosphere, not necessarily the wider world. This is important as often this kind of debate is muddled by people drawing in the oppressed and marginalised from nations that can only be viewed as not sharing Western values, which in this case is about respect for the rights of others, both legally and socially, and the right to be free to choose what you want to do. This is important as you cannot have a conversation on this subject if people try and draw in the evidence that has nothing to do with the discussion Distant crimes and victims, as doing so is cheating, designed only to win the argument, not about understanding it. I take the view that the freedoms people have in places like the UK or the US are the exception, not the norm. If you feel you're living in a racist society dominated by the patriarchy, I'd advise you to travel. As soon as you go beyond your borders, you see the world for what it really is, like leaving school and getting a job. Something even Malcolm X understood when he left the US and travelled to the Middle East and Africa. Also, many of my views are based on no longer living in the English world, where people fight over pronouns, hand gestures or memes, but in a place where women actually do live under a patriarchal system, or a social caste system is in force, and you see real racism and bigotry, often between black and brown people, and a place surrounded by countries where to be gay is a capital crime. For the sake of brevity, although there are many articles that could try and mount a defence against, both the well-intentioned and the hysterically insane, I'm going to focus on just one, the 2019 UK Government's Landscape Review Report, whose focus is the next steps for national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty in England. 
My reply to this document perhaps provides the basis of a defence to by other outdoor groups in other countries on other issues. The focus of the Landscape Review document is National Landscapes. It's aimed to to set out big ambitions so they are happier, healthier, greener, more beautiful and open to everyone. In the document, which contains some helpful ideas, the following paragraphs stand out that feed into this narrative. Paragraph 1. We are all paying for national landscapes through our taxes, and yet sometimes, on our visits, it felt as if the national parks are an an exclusive, mainly white, mainly middle-class club, with rules only members understand, and much too little done to encourage first-time visitors. The second paragraph continues... Many communities in modern Britain feel like these landscapes hold no relevance for them. The countryside is seen by both black, Asian and minority ethnic groups and white people as very much a white environment. If that is true today, then the divide is only going to widen as society changes. Our countryside will end up being irrelevant to the country that actually exists. On the subject of governance in the national parks, Lacking in diversity, they suffer from some democratic biases as much as, mu- as much as most authorities in England, lacking proper representation across age, gender, ethnicity and disability. Collectively, they have a, an average age of 64 years, have big gender imbalances with almost 2.5 males for every female and shockingly have only 0.9% representation by black, Asian or minority ethnic members. This is followed up by the final summary. Of almost 1,000 people in National Park, area of outstanding beauty boards today, the great majority are male, many are of of retirement age, and and a tiny fraction is of black, Asian or minority ethnicities. This is wrong for organisations which are funded by the nation to serve everyone. I'm sure many people will see nothing wrong with these statements. But anyone who pays pays close attention to how social justice works will see this is just phase one of a strategy. Intentional or not, they will only be destructive. First of all, I'd say the document appears to have little oversight by anyone brave enough to defend the outdoors against these charges or give a rational explanation to these issues. The reason for this is the generally cowardly nature of public bodies and organisations. How no one dares to object to to those they depend on for funding. To do so, and to go against the narrative, would be suicide. Instead, you must agree in public and implement what you're told in order to get the money you need. In the document, there is a mention of ethnic groups being cut off, disconnected, and about barriers and the club. It's very easy to take on these words and phrases without question, but in matters of language, you must always ask, who is doing the cutting? creating the disconnects and building these barriers. The document does not stop there, but paints a picture of the outdoors, a little like the Summer Isles in the film The Wicker Man, where these brave civil servants, on an away day to the Lake District, experience the true horror of outdoor bigotry. There is even a line about taking ethnic minorities into national parks and having to stop filming to minimise the stares from passers-by. This last point is one that highlights a big problem, and that some people like to, ha- like to make you believe they can read the minds of others, or at least they tell you they can, that they must move 
that they must move on due to some malign public hostility to outsiders when they were probably just wondering what was being filmed and the only malign thought was that in the author's mind. So before we set about recruiting freedom riders to help protect minorities in the national parks, it's worth, in the UK context, considering some data on this subject of whiteness. As much as I hate writing down the words black, white, Asian, it's unfortunately essential to do so in an age where race and gender have become the ID cards we're all increasingly forced to carry and consider in everything we say and do. Looking at the last UK census in 2011, 87.1% of the UK population was white, 6.9% was Asian, 3% black. Now once you realise that white people make up 98.19% of Scots, 96.6% of Welsh and 98.28% of Northern Irish, we're really only talking about England as having any substantial minority population. Of these minorities, almost all live in the big cities, with the majority living in London, which has a minority white population. This means that the cities are racially diverse and multicultural, while the countryside is not. This is generally true of all Western nations, as well as most countries beyond. We see the same primary factors in political divisions globally, whether it be the US, Australia or Turkey. Rural, rural monoculturalism versus metropolitan multiculturalism. Progressivism versus conservatism. Why do so-called minorities tend to live in cities? I suggest the, co- the contributory factors are social, historical and cultural. It's also worth stressing that statistical classifications such as black or Asian are not discrete entities in practice. Even in a small city like Sheffield, the Somali, Pakistani, Chinese, Afro-Caribbean, Indian, Bangladeshi and Iraqi communities may have very little in common and can even be hostile to one another. These national groupings may also be even more fragmented by factors such as employment, education, income, status, caste and class. Merely categorising people into big overall blocks can be severely limit- a severely limiting way of regarding them, and more importantly, understanding what's going on. Once again, these blocks will tend to fragment into much smaller and smaller, but more meaningful groupings, most often a group of a single individual, the individual, someone who has full agency. For the policymaker or politician, the one is a tricky number, as people set by themselves don't conform in ways in which you need them to conform. conform. They don't feel oppressed or have barriers put in their way or even feel they are a minority, well, not until we started pointing it out all the time. No, in order to make the world a better place, we must ignore the individual and focus on the whole. After all, a rabble-rouser can't can't rouse a rabble of one. To ignore the individual and to ignore cultural dimensions, such as South Asians may put family before mountain biking and prefer a trip to the seaside, is not only erroneous, worse, it's dehumanising. The elephant in the room, the default position held by those who speak on behalf of minorities, is they make the assumption that all minorities are all poor, pathetic, unable to speak or fight for themselves, and so live on the edge of society, some neo-Dickensian fantasy designed to give legitimacy to action, regardless of the damage it does. Certainly, money or poverty the lack of money, plays a huge role in, the, in access to just about everything, 
from owning a bike to going to the swimming pool to heating your house. But neither affluence nor poverty is necessarily dependent on the colour of your skin. People who push convenient and simplistic narratives really should question their motives and who they are really serving. In any case, the issue of poverty is somewhat beyond the control of the outdoor community to solve, or even the state, apart from, apart from perhaps from local charities and groups which work with young people in the outdoors. Certainly, all of us should support such initiatives as best we can, as this does offer the chance of affecting lives, even if in truth it's only one in a hundred. People who are at the bottom have complex problems, well beyond the simple cures handed down by those near the top. But are people more hostile to minorities in the, out- in the outdoors? Certainly there can be hostility towards outsiders in the countryside. Generally, people in small communities are cautious and suspicious of others not like them, but they tend to apply that to everyone. Sure, there will always be dangerous and hateful individuals wherever you go who will target you because you're different, taking out their anger and frustration on you. But they're individuals, not necessarily indicative of a group of people, such as everyone who lives in the countryside is a racist. Yes, if you're different, the 1,000th interaction with someone might be negative. The 10,000th might be hostile. But what about the thousands of people in between who were not? People think Africa is dangerous, with murder rates of 50 a day in South Africa, but would we call all Africans dangerous and hostile? Or would experience tell us that almost everyone is warm and kind and respectful, and that the ones that are not are also danger to everyone else in society, not just you? Often part of the rationale behind travelling to remote places is to engage with people who are very different from us, They may appear to have never drank a latte, eaten an avocado or had an email account. But they may also have never met anyone who isn't like them, black, Asian or white. The things they say or do will be alien and unexpected, even shocking, but it is also human and natural. Some people require proof that you are safe to trust and to talk to. You might also make them feel uncomfortable because you're not like them. You might make them feel poor or weak or small or even resent the fact that you make them aware that they are racist. People are very complex. Just think, you stroke a thousand dogs in your life, how many bit you? Yes, I've heard that people, I've heard of people treating someone who's black or Asian rudely, but I've also had friends who spat on someone's door because they had a poster of a political party they didn't agree with in their window. That's what people are like. Who will cast the first stone, as someone once said. Also, there is the indulgence that people in the West can wrap themselves in flypaper and go through life decrying how many flies they pick up. Victim culture is toxic. Everyday shit happens to (laughs) to people every day. The disappointment... Every slight and angry word is not always down to the colour of your skin. An example of this was when my wife and a friend once told a guy not to throw banana skins off a, be- off a viewing point at a beauty spot, only to be accused of being racist because the assumption was they only told him off because he was Asian. Another factor which is rarely understood is that generally the countryside, especially mountain areas, 
some of the poorest places you will ever find, be that Nepal or the Highlands of Scotland. Yes, the rich might buy fancy houses there and tourists visit the hot, the hot spots, but for the majority of the population, the environment is one big factory where money is short and opportunity virtually non-existent. The connection between the people and the land is often not one of love and commitment, but of servitude. These communities, the ones who cannot learn to exploit the outsiders, are always going to be prone to feeling even more impoverished by those outsiders, with their seemingly limitless leisure time and money. It's a little bit like walking into the deafening and dirty foundry floor and take a selfie and feeling unwelcome by the rough men who have to spend their whole lives in there. And then we have the question of simply being different. There's always a cost which cannot be legislated against. This, I'm afraid, is human nature. If you're a black climber at a climbing wall, a woman in a wheelchair trying to find her seat in a cinema, or a seven-foot-tall trans guy, people will notice you. But ask anyone who's visited China what it feels like to be white or black. Visit Africa, and if you're white, everyone shouts Mazungu at you and want to touch your straight hair, say you look like a zombie. Are people evil who stare at you? Or are they just being human? Something they can't help but be. Sometimes being different both scares and excites simultaneously. It's not always a racist thing unless you want it to be. Or something to be offended at unless you want it to be. It's a human thing. As for the running of things that our wild places are dominated by this old white male elite, well... So are model railway clubs, and probably for the same reason. We are not talking about the South African government, but some god-awful low-paid or voluntary management role that is only ever a source of constant criticism, trying your best to steer the underfunded park through a never-ending storm of apparatchiks and lobbyists and politicians. Why don't we have more women, black, Asian or minority ethnic farmers, for example? Because it's a shit job best left to old white men, who more often than not retire by blowing their brains out with a shotgun. I'd also be very wary of anyone who likes to divide up people by race, who talk about people in terms of quarters, groups, ratios and percentages. Such people should never be given power over any human being and instead should be posted to some far-off place where no one lives for the rest of of their lives and confined to dealing with spreadsheets. When I was a kid, the big thing we were always told was the danger of groupthink. Isn't that what we're doing right now? So how do we go on? I believe in building allies and playing a long game. I believe that slow, organic growth and consensus is how you create a better world. For these reasons, I feel like the contributions of hustlers, know-nothings and unelected spokespeople tend not to build consensus, but to destroy it. Such people tend to be writing personal wrongs and disappointments, looking for power or exploiting them in others. And in the process, they dehumanise both the question and the answer. To overcome the alienation of one small group in society, they seek to alienate everyone from everyone else. I'm also not a fan of state meddling either, as the constant turnover of government means they rarely, rarely have significant investment in anything difficult or meaningful. This leads to short, terrible short-termism, where social programmes and great leap forwards spring up with dubious goals, bringing in 
the NGOs and lobbyists who promise to create short-term results but die as soon as the funding stops. For example, the big push for more women in climbing seems to have come about due to demands from the Sports Council. Funding dependent on public bodies tackling an issue that's not even clearly defined, paying no attention to how social change is bringing this about instead, creating a mad scramble for cash for dubious projects, schemes and new positions, money better spent and long-term projects where everyone can benefit, access or investments in buying wild places. The same is true of the current focus on disabilities in climbing, which people see as being a sign of progress. In reality, it's a requirement for the entry of climbing into the Olympics, just a bureaucratic, bureaucratic exercise. Where the change will best be served is in education. Imagine if all children, white, black, blue, green, had one week a year in the outdoors, camping, climbing, getting wet and cold, with their phones taken off them, daily or least weekly exposure to nature as part of the curriculum. This kind of thing would, be, would revolutionise how British people view the outdoors. Yes, British people, not British minorities. These children would have a chance to consider their place and value in nature and to one another. But such a project would require central and local government taking it seriously. Instead, it looks as though every child will only be granted the opportunity to sleep under the stars for just one night during their education. As for adults, what is often forgotten by social justice advocates and the agents of change is that people are adults. They have self-advocacy. They have complex reasons for their goals and actions. It's not for you to judge a person because they prefer to play football or snooker, cricket, go fishing, do a park run or simply use their leisure time to play on Xbox and then go to the cinema rather than climb a mountain. Yes, they might tell you they feel like Snowdonia is a white club when you ask someone's opinion in the street, but they are wrong. Did any civil servant go speak to the Indian family on top of the old man of Coniston, the black guy in the climbing wall, the multitude of nationalities gracing the summit of Arthur's seat every single day? Is the view of someone who chooses to feel excluded and demands that other people fix it, with no thought of the cost of society, worth re-engineering the entire world? What if they had never had any intention to do anything in the outdoors anyway? What if it was all about rights and not about actually going out and getting wet and cold and dirty and knackered, but actually they just like playing Fortnite? For me, and for many others, the outdoors has always offered a, an escape, a place where people can be equal, where money often means surprisingly little, and where the rich sometimes envy the poor. With your hood up, everyone looks the same. The outdoors has been the making of so many of us. The dysfunctional have been learned to become functional. The narrow-minded have been forced to broaden their outlook. The outdoors offers boundless opportunities for those who seek them. Often help is freely given by strangers from all walks of life. And historically, many outdoor communities have been welcoming to anyone who wished to join in. They do not ask what your gender is, your race or sexual orientation, your politics what papers you read, or even if you can read. There are no rules, dress codes, or direct debits, and you are free to join and free to leave. Yes, the outdoors can ask a lot of a person, but as for the communities who cherish them, you only ask people to have respect for where they are and for who they are with. Most of all, 
the outdoors is an escape from all that is bad about civilization, even about being a human being in the 21st century. So it's something worth defending from ideologues and their good intentions. So back to the game of cricket. Do you know, even after months of walking, the, walking past these guys playing cricket, they still fail to ask me to join them. But I don't think it's about... I don't think it's because they're racist or xenophobic or don't like English people or there's something wrong with the noble game of cricket. No. It's not for them to ask everyone who passes by if they want to join in. It's for you to volunteer. So, so there you go. Um, I'm sure some people won't agree with that. Some people will agree, but you probably don't want to tell anybody else. Um, uh, so this is a really... Like I, I, I just think it's something that, like I've seen, I've seen climbing change. Like I've been climbing since I was five years old. You know, I was consciously aware of climbing in the outdoors. You know, probably from the age of like, you know, seven or eight. You know, climbed all over the world, met hundreds, if not thousands, of climbers, talked to, you know, lectured to thousands of climbers. You know, met so many different people. Um, you know, and it's, I just think that it's a real tragedy. I think it's a real tragedy. I can't think of any group in in society which are like openly hostile to any, any other group really. Like even, um, you know, I will even defend people in golf clubs. Do you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> you know, like a lot of golf clubs have people who are like ordinary people, like working people who... Like people are, people are like I'm. I'll, I'll just like I have. I, I'm. As I say I'm starting another podcast. That's not. It's more about these kind of issues. It's nothing to do with climate. But this is kind of this intersects the two. But I'll tell you this story for me that really sums up the complex nature of of people and how these things kind of are really going on beyond like tweets and headlines and opinion things in the Guardian. Is I was once in a taxi in Doncaster in north north of England. And the taxi driver, we're talking about politics, and he was like, he didn't like all the all the immigrants coming to Doncaster. And I said, so who are you going to vote for in the in the next election? And he said, I'm going to vote for the National Front, which is like, you know, like the fascist party kind, you know, like you know, nationalistic, racist kind of party. I don't think it exists anymore. And I said, oh, it's typical. Like you're a classic lifelong Labour supporter who, because of um, the, the amount of immigration that came into you know that in after nineteen ninety eight by the Labour Party who who you thought represented you you're gonna be, you're gonna go and become like this like right wing kind of asshole guy he said yeah I am and you know what all my black mates would as well if they could <laughs> and that that just one statement this guy could be voting for the National Front while having friends who were black or Asian or whatever and um, so yeah that, maybe that's why I'm a writer because I just find I find people are just in- incredible, you know, that, that, you know. So anyway, so hopefully uh, I will I will get back to just climbing stuff from now on. I, I won't be straying into any more of this kind of stuff. But sometimes just by saying these things or posting these things um, is, is kind of trying, you're trying to, you're trying to get a, a, a little spoon and you're moving some of the, you know, the molehill mountain, over to the over to where there's not you know you're trying to shift it to where there is where where what people should be talking about really and um 
and having you know having these having these difficult they're not difficult conversations you know anyone else in the world could like talk about this kind of thing you know, especially if you're Chinese anyway that's a bit racist anyway okay I shall I shall finish it there uh, until Tuesday uh, goodbye Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.